in just eight days' time, polling will be nearly over in this most closely fought of elections. And already there has been a huge amount spoken and written about party politics beyond election day. Tonight, though, we're taking a rather wider view. We won't be asking our speakers to endorse or advise us how to vote for a particular political party. We're standing back and putting party politics in the context of what you might call small p politics, the task we all share of discerning a common good and building a common life. The word politics comes from the Greek word for city. How do we live together in community? And so I hope you won't be too offended if I suggest that in that sense, everyone here is a politician, or certainly should be. So what our panel of speakers are helping us to think about is how we do that, how we build a common life together more effectively. Um, be afraid, be, be very afraid. Uh, once upon a time, a well-known tabloid newspaper called me the most dangerous woman in Britain. Um, sadly, that title has, I think, now been stolen by um, a very popular politician north of the border. For this, we will sue. So, so what was it, what made, what was it that, that, that made me so dangerous in the, in the eyes of that particular tabloid newspaper? Well, I believe in fundamental rights and freedoms. I believe in human rights, not just as a system of law, but as a system of ethical values that bind together the entire human family. I'm not here to give uh, a law lecture. I could quote all sorts of instruments, the Universal Declaration, the European Convention, our own Human Rights Act, all, all frameworks very much under attack, even in the current general election campaign. I could do that, but that would take too much time. So instead, let me sum up everything that I believe about human rights with, with three words. Dignity, equality, and fairness. But the greatest of these, I argue, is equality. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that the, the, right, the human right to equal treatment under the law is more important even than rules against torture and slavery and the respect for your privacy and your free speech and all these vital, these freedom of thought, conscience and religion, all of these vital human rights? Why is equal treatment the most important human right of all? Well... Because in my experience, whilst critics say they don't believe in human rights, they say that they're um, selfish libertarian um, values, or they say that they're politically correct gone mad, in truth, everybody loves human rights. Their own. And those of people like themselves and their friends and their family and people they identify with, it's other people's rights and freedoms that are a problem. And in my view, there would be no torture and no modern-day slavery and no blanket intrusions into people's privacy or freedom of thought, conscience and religion and so on if, uh, 
if we treated others as we would like to be treated, if we walked around in others' shoes, and so on. Two big ideas drive how large companies, or as the lawyers know them, corporations are run today shareholder value and stock market efficiency. And my challenge is to keep you awake while talking a little about the history and the current state of thinking of these two big ideas of uh, my generation. The problem is that there's quite a bit of evidence that the market's a bit short-termist. It's actually not so good at reflecting value way out, uh, way out into the future. And even if you disagree with that idea, there's plenty of evidence that the CEOs, the chief executive officers, and the directors believe the market is short-termist. So they behave accordingly. They may boost short-term profits at the expense of research and development, or indeed they may even take actions that damage the company's long-term reputation to maximize short-term value. Some argue that those who go out of their way to avoid paying tax are falling into this trap, hurting their reputation by not paying sufficient tax and putting, in a sense, mortgaging the future. So we're left with a, a bit of an intellectual vacuum, I would propose, in business. Maximizing long-term share of values is probably still has some legs. It seems a good guide for directors to guide companies in the interest of society. That's the purpose, guide these corporations in the interest of society. It's up to citizens then, at real, not imaginary, to spend money on social programs through the ballot box or through their own personal philanthropy, not for corporations to do it. But assuming that this long-term value is measured by short-term stock prices may be leading people badly astray. Any consensus about how we best approach the common good must be up to addressing the biggest enemies to that common good. Christian Aid's top three, which we identify as the three very biggest drivers of poverty, climate change, international tax dodging, and the scandal of gender inequality, which means that women and girls represent the large majority of people living in extreme poverty. Now, arriving at some shared view of how to focus on the common good is a complex task, which does lend itself to do what we're doing tonight, breaking it down into business and government and civil society. But that siloed approach is fraught with difficulty at the end, because ultimately we have to transcend all of those divisions. I think that presents a challenge and an opportunity to each one of us on the panel, whichever part of the debate we start from. At ChristianAid, we start from here. The poverty that we see is incompatible with our belief that every person is made in the image of God and so is of inherent dignity and infinite worth. So we need to respond to our desire for the common good by dismantling the environment in which poverty flourishes and putting in the building blocks of a world without poverty in which personal, social, political and economic power are truly shared. This is a world in which true charity flourishes. Politics, I think, should be about a public life in which we grow individually and collectively in awareness and understanding. It is about discerning higher possibilities, not only choosing among baser ones. And we have plenty of big issues that demand this deeper sort of politics. Climate change, inequality, financial interdependence, and the deep question 
of what it means to be in all of this together. A second theme. When we speak of civil society, and indeed I agree very much that this has to be on the agenda, we shouldn't think of it as just outside of government and the market. There's a common everyday sense that says, well, there's the market, and there's government, and there's this other province of civil society. I think that we are rightly led to think about connections, as my predecessor did. It's right to think about society itself and not just the way it's carved up. One of the problems with speaking of civil society in this sector-specific way is that it rather accepts that government and markets don't have the kinds of shared responsibilities that civil society has. We should see society itself as civil insofar as it connects us in a self-regulating, in a civic way to each other and enables us to live lives we want. We cannot, after all, thrive without it. The common good, then, is a good that joins us in a common life. It is not just a different distribution of private goods. So I'm going to open this up for our first set of questions. Um, do please keep them coming in, questions about what you've heard and questions about what you and we can do together about what we've heard beyond election day. For me, the big issue, the big question is how do we stop business taking over our politics? My question is this, uh, as much as Christianity may play a role in people's personal lives, what role does it play or can it play in, in terms of politics and business? My question is what role should the United Kingdom play in the future of world affairs? My question is, <laughs> is neoliberalism dead and if not, how do we kill it? <laughs> We're now moving towards uh, the panel's closing remarks. Um, each member of the panel gets a couple of minutes to uh, respond to the whole discussion and in particular to focus on the question of what one person uh, can do. And I'll close by returning to the question that didn't get attention about sacrifice. And I think this is actually an important theme in various ways not just because we should all sacrifice ourselves and die for our country, um, which conjures a rather militaristic image of the way patriotism works, but because we should recognize that giving can be important, that we have a society enormously structured around getting, and um, thinking in terms of how we can give is a really critical thing. And it's an occasion for redefining the good. So I think it's not just that we say we accept values, like extremely militaristic uh, milit values, extremely um, monetaristic, property-oriented values, of, uh, utilitarian values. If we are serious about asking ourselves what we want to be, part of what that means is sacrificing in some aspects of our lives to embrace a different concept of the good. And I think that that's important for us to ask, what kinds of good do we want? And this conversation has talked about several
several of those. Do we want to be better off at the expense of other people, um, child laborers or whoever in the world, modern-day slavery? Do we want to pursue an image of security that involves an island nation um, erecting borders around itself that are impermeable? impermeable? Do we have a higher sense of the good that is also not just a sacrifice, it is an embrace of a good that we can achieve for ourselves. Thank you. We need to ask ourselves, in the light of everything that we've heard, you know, what kind of world is it that we actually want to live in? Um, and we, I think we all know, I think Shami's absolutely right, we don't want to, to, to think of the world as, as London or um, you know, England. We want to think of ourselves as citizens of the world. I think everyone here has echoed that. With, with that comes responsibility to, to play a part, to be informed, to speak out, uh, to be willing to connect. And if there's anything in the common good, I think there's a shared view here that it is about connection. Well, um, I met one chief executive officer a few years ago who was taking a much more long-term view. And I said, well, why is this happening? He said, I was very impressed by the Arab Spring. I met one of the leaders of the Arab Spring and he told me he had recruited on Facebook, rallied on Twitter and communicated on YouTube. He said, if my consumers start doing that and if I'm not behaving well, and occasionally I won't behave well, um, I'd better be attentive because they've got real power. So please do choose your campaign, but get engaged as a consumer as an employee, and please don't forget to get engaged as a member of a pension fund. They're the ones with the votes, and they often neglect to vote them. Choose your campaign, use the power of social media, because it really is very powerful and it does change attitudes. So, as, as we see here today, um uh, church is not just for Sunday or for Christmas, and politics is not just for once every five years when you, when you cast your vote. And yes, there are all sorts of challenges, but we also have enormous opportunities as well, not least with new and social media, the opportunity to connect with, with campaigns and peoples all over the world. I would say, wouldn't I, join Liberty, give to Christian Aid, but also, also live your values in your home, in your workplace, in your shopping basket uh, and everywhere else and, and I do have hope. Someone once told me after I'd given a very grim and worthy speech about human rights violations that was wonderful Shami but please remember that Martin Luther King never said I have a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so personal engagement and, and solidarity and um, it's been a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you very much.